Regardless of age, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religious affiliation, political persuasion, or any other diversifying factor, porn can impact anyone. If you've recognized the harmful effects of pornography in your life, or recognize the harms pornography can cause on society, we welcome you to become a fighter. As fighters, we strive to be bold, understanding, open-minded, and accepting. If you're ready to become an official fighter, we invite you to join the movement at ftnd.org forward slash fighter. That's ftnd.org forward slash F-I-G-H-T-E-R. Join us in our fight for love by becoming a fighter today. My name is Garrett Johnson, and you're listening to Consider Before Consuming, a podcast by Fight the New Drug. And in case you're new here, Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. We want these conversations to be educational, uplifting, and hopeful. As we sit down with experts, influencers, activists, and people with personal accounts, we cover a wide variety of topics that may be triggering to some. You can refer to the episode notes for a specific trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is with Aaron Crowley. He was exposed to pornography at the age of nine and continued to turn to porn throughout his adolescence. His porn consumption normalized sexual objectification and distorted his view of healthy sex. Later in life, Aaron experienced drug-facilitated sexual assault and image-based sexual abuse, which triggered trauma-induced hypersexuality. While in college, he entered the porn industry to make ends meet. During this conversation, we talk about his experience in the porn industry, how it negatively impacted him, and what he's up to today. With that being said, let's jump into the conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. I already said thank you. I want to say thank you again because honestly, my heart feels open and uh, I feel gratitude to have this conversation with you today. Um, So thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, the feelings mutual. I'm very excited to be with Fight the New Drug. I love your your guys' organization and your vision and just everything so much. I'm totally a fanboy over here. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are humbled by the support. So thanks. And for us to accomplish our mission statement, our mission statement is to educate on the harmful effects of pornography using science facts and personal accounts. The personal account aspect is kind of where you come in. In regards to the the first question, to better understand your personal account, it might be good for us to better understand like who you who you were, and so that we can better understand your experience as we learn more about that. Can you talk to what your life was like growing up, Aaron? Yeah, so I was raised by a, a single mother. Um, my father left whenever I was younger, and um, because my mom was, you know, trying to take care of us on her own, uh, she, you know, worked a lot, and so there was a lot of times that I was home alone with my brother or even just myself. You know, my my family likes to talk about how I basically raised myself okay. um, in a lot of senses um, because. You know, she she had to become provider and nurturer and, like, you know, all the... She had to fill in all the roles, you know? Yeah. It's almost like um, she had to step up and that required you to step up. Right. Kind of thing. And um, because I was home alone a lot with my brother, that's actually how I first encountered porn. I walked in on him and his friends uh, watching porn. And, you know, I was, like, nine. And they were, like, 14, 15. So... His friend kind of ju- like jumped up and like was gonna try to hide the TV, you know. Yeah. Um. But my brother was like, no, no, no. He needs to see this, and so he had me sit down with them and watch what was happening. And you know, this was my first encounter seeing anything sexual. Really knowing anything sexual, right? It was my first encounter with anything about sex, right? Um. And so. It, um, I had no idea what I was watching, but I, I realized now looking back, like why my brother was very adamant of, no, 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 he should watch this. I heard him whisper to my friend, see, I told you he isn't gay. And, you know, the friend replied something like, uh, 
I don't know. He could be looking at the guys or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess what had been going on is my brother's friends would tease him that I was gay. And he, you know, did what he could to, I guess, make me not be gay. And he thought porn was that, you know, because in his brain and in a lot of young men's, young boys' brains, it the idea is that, you know, porn is a man's thing. It's a thing that makes you more masculine. It makes you more of a man, right? right. Um, and so... And, to, and, and in his eyes, being gay makes you less of a man. And, you know, having me at nine years old watch porn with them, uh, I think was his way of, you know, proving to himself and his friends that I'm not gay and to, I guess, encourage me away from being gay. Yeah. This is kind of a personal question, so if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But do you hold any resentment towards your brother for holding that perspective at one point and kind of putting you through that, um, that scenario? As I got older, like in my teenage years, yeah, a little bit. But um, as I got older <laughs> from my teenage years, mm-hmm. um, uh, no. Like I totally got – I, you know, I understand what he grew up in and what he, you know, thought things were. Right. Um, so I, I have more compassion and empathy for him now. Yeah. Um, but there was a period in my teenage years as I was, you know, coming out to myself and figuring things out and realizing things, um, there was a bit of resentment and he and I had a lot of falling outs and a lot of issues. Um, That's tough. Yeah. But today, you know, I, 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 you know, release forgiveness and have empathy for him and compassion and, um, That's cool. I love my brother. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. This is also a personal question and you don't have to speak to it if you don't want to, but I think it's a pretty big deal. Like at what point did you understand that you were gay? So <clears throat> that's a whole nother journey. <laughs> a podcast for itself. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me try to give you the spark notes version. So I first heard the word gay from my cousins who were using it and talking about it in a very homophobic way. I was probably about eight. Um, and so whenever it was defined to me what gay meant, I realized, oh, I might be that. Like, that's what first went in my head. And then I realized the tone of how it was being used. And I was like, oh, and it's a bad the, thing. The stigma behind it was apparent. Yeah. And so I um immediately right off the bat whenever i realized what that meant and i realized what it was i realized that it was something i did not want to be that that would be tough as a heterosexual male i've never experienced that but i can imagine that that would be exhausting um uh exhausting i like that i like that word for it growing up in that environment and hearing it used in a homophobic way and like realizing that's a part of yourself, it's very mentally consuming because it's like this war immediately starts within you where you're like, you know, I had a crush on this guy. So that means I might be this, but this is bad. So it's something I need to absolutely not talk about. It's something I need to absolutely, you know, uh, suppress within myself. And um, you know what? I think exhausting is a good way to describe that because it's mentally exhausting. It's mentally, um, you know, trying to not be yourself. I think probably something you're not, it's very exhausting. Yeah. I think probably mentally and emotionally and socially Mm -hmm. and uh, which in, in turn is going to affect physically. Yeah. It's tough. Did, um, did your first exposure to pornography lead to you seeking out porn later in life? Oh, yeah. So um, after that first encounter with pornography with my brother and because of how positively it was presented, you know, like I said, my brother and his friends made it seem like, you know, if you watch porn, that makes you more of a man. Um, You know, I definitely, whenever they were together watching porn again, I would watch it with them. And... Then whenever my brother wasn't home, I knew where he hid the videotapes. I knew where um, he uh, hid magazines. There was a period of time where my uncle was staying with us. I knew where he hid his stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, I would grab 
that stuff and I would, you know, watch it, look at it. Um, and then whenever I got older and we got internet, we we were a little bit poorer on the poorer end. So we didn't get internet till later compared to like my peers. But as soon as we got it, I, whenever I had a moment, went online and searched for porn and, you know, was looking up porn and doing all that online as well. So yeah, definitely porn played a big role in my childhood. Yeah. Did you consume porn just to kind of like, I don't know how to say it, except for just like man up? Or was there an ulterior motivation of like some type of sex education or curiosity about sexuality? Or was it just trying to like be a man and then follow after your brother and his friends? Um, A little bit of all of that. So it was definitely, you know, trying to relate to my brother and his friends, you know, because they were older. So I looked up to them, right? Of course. Um, There's a little bit of that. Like I said, it was my first encounter with sex. So it, it became my sex education. I didn't necessarily go searching for it and looking for it to learn about sex. Like that wasn't really in my mind, but it was how I had learned about sex. Yeah. This is kind of like an uh, abrupt transition, but it kind of has to be because you're a person who has experienced drug facilitated sexual assault or rape. And that's a big part of your experience. I'm just wondering if your porn consumption early on normalized that sexual objectification of how you saw sex and how you saw yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It did. So, you know, like I said, whenever I got a little older, we got the internet. And so I started looking up things online. Well, now because I had the internet and I could be more anonymous and I could search my own stuff, that's whenever I found gay pornography. Um, And what I saw in gay pornography seemed to validate the things that had been told to me about gay people, how gay people were displayed to me. Um, which was, you know, hypersexual, oversexualized. Um, you know, gay men are men, so they always want sex. And it was also very violent. You know, it was not just violent, but homophobically violent. I heard homophobic and transphobic words used. Um, there was a lot of violence. You know, smacking around, even. Rape. A lot of a lot of the gay porn I encountered was gay rape porn. Um, you know, like I guess I probably shouldn't tell you the specifics, but um, it was it was very violent and um, aggressive. So that began to solidify in me what it meant to be gay. Like I learned. You asked, you know, did I learn sex education through porn? I learned what it means to be gay and what gay sex is what gay intimacy is through porn. And so whenever I was in college, whenever I went to college, um, you know, I was freshly new. I just came out. And um, because I'm new to college, it was like my first week in college. I got on the internet to look for other gay men who were freshmen at my school to like see, you know, hey, is are there any meetups or is, what are people doing? I need to make friends, right? Right. right. Um, and so I met this guy online who said that he was going to another guy's house and they were going to have a small little get-together party. Um, well, at that little party, I got um, drunk to the point that I don't remember really much of anything. And then I woke up the next day. I was basically naked. Uh, the guy who invited me, he was on the floor, passed out with a camera. And, you know, I was too hungover for it to really understand what was going on. But I knew in my gut, like, I did not feel very good. Right. Later that day, the guy who took the pictures let me know. He said the pictures came out really hot from last night and then it just like dawned on me and like everything that happened like clicked that night I had been raped 
and pictures were taken, and he was sharing them all over the internet. And, you know, when that happened, the immediate thoughts that went to my mind were things that I had seen in pornography. Um, and so my mind went to, this is normal. We're often portrayed, LGBT plus people are often portrayed as over-sexualized and hypersexual and that we're just about hooking up, right? We're just about sex. And that's not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's how we're portrayed. And I, and I know many of us often own that portrayal as part of our identity. Mm. That's how it was painted to me. That's what was going through my mind when all this was happening. And it became normal to the point that I didn't even really actually understand at that time that it was rape. I uh, Like that word didn't cross my mind, but I knew in my gut I was very uncomfortable. I was not okay with what happened. You know, I asked the guy to like take the pictures down. I was like, don't share that. Like, you know, please delete all those pictures. And his response to me was why? You know, guys think, these, th- this is hot. Like, everyone thinks this is hot. You're hot. Like, this is really cool. And so it, it, like, normalized to me, you know, okay, this is what it means to be gay. This is this is how I get validation from other gay men. This is what it means to be a part of the LGBT community and everything. And, you know, I eventually talked the guy into deleting those pictures, or at least that's what I thought he showed me he was deleting them. But then later someone told me he still had them. He still said that he deleted them so I don't really know what happened yeah. with all of that but um and I, I didn't know what to do I you know because it was so normalized to me I you know I didn't go to the place and then if I did go to the place what would they do you know yeah. it's on the internet what, what like you know yeah um and then also because I'm a guy again I didn't think men could be raped and I I I was uh, afraid of being ridiculed because of that you know uh, and, and and all these victim blame mentalities started entering my mind of, you know, well, I was drunk, so it's, you know, my fault. And, you know, I, I'm gay, so, you know, it's something I, I probably would have chosen or I probably would have wanted to do. So I didn't, I, di- I didn't really speak to anyone about it until years later as I was writing my book. Um, wow. And, and that's kind of... You know, in going in and processing it years later and processing all that trauma, that's, you know, how I realized, you know what, I'm going to speak out on this um, because I need this mentality to be destroyed. You know, I actually even just recently, like that mentality that caused me to normalize my rape, it's so prevalent even still today. And a part of me is like probably because of pornography. Pornography has normalized this idea of, you know, people can be obligated to have to have sex with someone. Right. Um, and that kind of goes off into a whole bunch of other points that we're probably yeah, going like, to get to. <laughs> porn does normalize exploitation. Yeah. And, yeah, like that's just straight facts. Um, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think about Terry Crews' experience. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but maybe you're not, with him being sexually assaulted. It's pretty interesting because, you know, he's, I think he's like 6'3", you know, 230 pounds of, you know, he's probably like 8% body fat and played in the NFL and Mm -hmm. all these things. And like, so I think there is that perception like that he can't be sexually assaulted. Right. And he was sexually assaulted and it negatively impacted him. And yeah, it just speaks to that, that if you're a man, you can't be sexually assaulted. You can't be, you can't experience rape. But that's just, you know, it's not true. Right. Well, as I think about your experience with not only drug-facilitated sexual assault or rape, but also with the image-based abuse that you experienced with him sharing your photos without your consent, it's interesting because we don't know. This is just speculation, but some of the people who saw those images... It's very likely that they they thought you were consenting. Yeah. And so I just kind of want to point that out because that's like one of the main issues with user-generated content on mainstream internet porn sites is like you don't know all of the context. 
and you can't be sure that it's consensual. Absolutely. That's right. So rewinding back to 2008, 2009, when you had this very, very challenging and negative experience with the drug-facilitated sexual assault and then also the image-based abuse, like, did you have anyone to talk to? Was there a trusted someone that you could talk to about these things that you were facing? Yeah, no. Like I said, I I didn't um, speak to anyone about it. I didn't even have the words for myself. Oh, okay. Like, all of it was being processed in my mind, you know, being warped with, you know, what I knew from porn and um, what I had seen or how I had seen um, gay men portrayed, you know, in the media and from, you know, family members and, you know, just general homophobia. Right. Um, like, all of that kind of melded together, and that's how I was processing it's like rape. Sh- Sorry to interrupt you. I, I just You're think fine. it feels like the shame and the stigmas were like paralyzing you. Yeah, because you know, I I didn't know where to find a safe safe space to talk about it and yeah. to process it. Because um, I even my own self, I did, I wasn't a safe space to mm. you know process and talk about it because of the shame and stigma that's already been put on me. Yeah. You know, I was not a safe safe place to process what was happening. It's and almost what had like, happened. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like you were not a safe space. That's really interesting. I it's almost like you were and I'm not blaming you when I say this, but I'm just making an observation. It's almost like you were participating in victim blaming because yeah. you just didn't understand. It's not that you were truly like blaming yourself. It's just that you didn't understand the context of all these things. Exactly. Yeah, because that those mi- mindsets and that mentality was so normal to me. Yeah, I I did. I victim blamed myself. I Dang. was processing it in the sense of, well, you know, this is all my fault. I chose to go over there with people that I barely knew. Mm-hmm. You know, I you know, it it was all in my mind my fault as I was processing it. Right. It's like yeah, drugs and and alcohol and being with people you're not familiar with. Like these do increase the risk a little bit, but that doesn't make exploitation okay, right? Right. Oh, man. It's a lot. Well, I don't know. I can't help but think about how traumatic that must have been. And when I think about trauma, one of the negative consequences is like nightmares. And the way, Mm. the reason why this comes to mind is because we experienced a pretty significant earthquake a couple of years ago. And after that earthquake, I had some nightmares about earthquakes. And then also mm-hmm. when a truck would drive past and like it kind of rumbles the building, like I thought there was going to be another earthquake. And I think that's what's interesting about trauma is that it can make you scared of maybe things that you, you know, really shouldn't be scared of. Like I don't know. I'm just wondering how you started to trust men again eventually. Or like, I'm wondering if you had nightmares because of all of the traumatic experience that you had. Yeah, I, um, I, I did. I had, I've had like, you know, trauma nightmares and actually they, they had like, I, I hadn't had them in a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. And then actually just a couple of weeks ago, I had one. Dang. For the first time in a while. And it wasn't really about my rape. It was actually about my time in the porn industry. Um, it, it, uh, I woke up in the middle, middle of the night from a nightmare uh, from back then. Yeah. It was like, you know, I was in my nightmare. I was in that moment. I was living again. Mm-hmm. In that in the, that time, um, and then you know, thank God I woke up and you know my husband was asleep next to me and I just looked over. I was like, okay, I'm home in my bed. But nightmares and and things like that um, weren't the main way that I learned to cope with um, what had happened. Yeah, actually, the main and biggest way that I coped with that sexual assault was um, hypersexuality. 
Um, you know, because like I said, I was in a safe space. I was processing it in my mind with all the shame and victim blaming. And, you know, I dove deep into, you know, gay hookup culture. And, it, you know, I, I became very hypersexual. And, you know, I've since learned that that's actually a very common trauma response to sexual assault and rape is hypersexuality because it's where subconsciously trying to regain control and we're putting ourselves in similar situations where we're kind of hoping for a different outcome or we're trying to control the outcome. Um, But what happened to me is I ended up uh, finding myself in more situations where I was sexually assaulted, where I was raped again. And, and you know, that it just made rape and sexual assault. It made my sexual objectification more normalized um, to the point that, you know, it became like a normal part of my life that I was almost expecting it. <clears throat> and, yeah, that's what eventually, you know, whenever porn was presented to me, that's what made it so easy to, you know, jump into the porn industry. Yeah. How many years, I guess I shouldn't say years because I'm not sure if it was even a year, but how much time did you spend in the porn industry? Uh, it was It was about a year, actually. How did you enter the porn industry. Can you talk to that a little bit? Um, you know, like I said, I was diving into gay hookup culture and I got into a gay hookup app, an app, you know, that's specifically geared towards, you know, gay men hooking up. Yeah. So yeah, I was on that app and one day a guy reached out to me and said, hey, I think you'd be really good in this and um, I'd like to invite you to... Um, I don't know if he used the word audition, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, he invited me to a studio to um, take pictures to submit to studios because he was kind of like a talent scout agent manager type for the porn industry. Yeah. And so, um, you know, like I said, all of it was so normal to me. Ever, the idea of being in porn was normal to me because, yeah. you know, those pictures had been taken. I had grown up with porn. I, in you know, I was already hypersexual because of everything. I was trying to regain control. And this seemed like a really great option to help pay, you know, the rest of my way through school. And, you know, get myself a little bit more financially stable because at that time I was very much not financially stable. I was struggling just to get money for food um, and rent and all of that. Um, So it seemed like a nice, it seemed like a good option. Yeah, it seems like. So I took him up on that offer. Yeah. And um, yeah. You've already talked to this guy's tactic a little bit, but it it might be helpful to also go into the experience like that first time being in porn and what that was like for you and maybe some of the unhealthy behavior or exploitation that this, you know, talent manager used. We call him a talent manager. I don't know, just exploiter. I call him my pimp today. Okay. Yeah. Like it might be helpful when we're talking about the harmful effects of pornography, it might be helpful to understand tactics used by your pimp. Yeah, so whenever whenever I went to his studio to take the pictures, it was kind of what I expected, you know, pose in front of a bare wall, you know, while he took pictures. Well, there came a point where he unzipped his pants and pulled out his penis and sat in a chair and he looked at me. He didn't really like look at me. He like kind of looked past me. I actually talk about that this in my book where he didn't really make eye contact with me whenever he said this. Mm. Um, but he said, if you want to be a part of this industry, this is a part of it. And what he was doing there was basically seeing if I would be comfortable with exactly what was going to happen to me in porn. Mm-hmm. You know, where I no longer was in control of my body. Right. Was I going to submit and do what I was told? You know, was I going to acquiesce to the demands of the producers and, you know, 
everyone else on set. Yeah. And what's really interesting to me is what he did in any other industry would be considered sexual assault because oh, yeah. he's an employer. He's an employer with power, with a power dynamic over me as an employee. Yeah. Asking for a sexual favor. Yep. That's sexual assault. But yep. because it's porn and because sex is the nature of, you know, the industry, because sexual assault is the nature of the industry, um, you know, it's normal. This is exactly what goes on. And, you know, even he said it. This is, if you want to be a part of this industry, this is a part of it. He right there was saying, Without saying, you know, he right there was saying sexual assault is a part of this industry. And I I like to bring that up to people who are like in defense of the porn industry. I like to point out and say, okay, so, you know, that power dynamic of employer, an employee, if an employer asks an employee for a sexual favor, that's sexual assault because there's a major power dynamic involved. Where does that line get drawn? Where does it get drawn that we can step over into the porn industry and say, oh, asking for sexual favors, actually asking for sexual acts in exchange for money, you know, it's acceptable when? Where's that line drawn? Yeah. Like, when's it acceptable for the employer to request, you know, sexual favors from an employee for money? Yeah. Where's that line? Just imagine. Because all of a sudden it's acceptable because there's a camera, but it's not acceptable in any other place. Right. And just to kind of elaborate on what you're saying, it's like, Imagine going on LinkedIn and this person's like, yeah, to work here and then pulls out their genitals and says, this is part of it. It boggles my mind that that is one of the job requirements in the porn industry to be tolerant Mm -hmm. of sexual harassment, sexual assault and rape. I mean, that's the nature of it. I mean, we would, I mean, we're not going to say those words, right? Like that's not good for the PR, but that's essentially what it is. I mean, again, it's an employer asking for sexual favor right. and sexual acts from employees. Yeah. That in any other situation is sexual assault. And this question's kind of off the cuff. And if you don't want to answer it, then just say so. My question is regarding coercion, because if you look at the definition of coercion, it's to persuade using threat. And mm. this talent agent or also known as your pimp or this exploiter, for him to say, you know, this is part of it, if you don't participate, basically it seemed like he was insinuating that if you didn't participate, if you weren't okay with this, then you couldn't be in the industry. And to me, that's a form of coercion. So I'm just wondering, like, Mm -hmm. do you identify as like a victim of sex trafficking? Because it seems like potentially by definition, by legal definition, that could fall within that that definition i don't know yeah so i um i've grappled with that a lot um and so i don't know about calling it sex trafficking necessarily um but even if i wasn't sex trafficked i definitely was exploited yeah okay well i think that a common belief amongst general society is that people who enter the porn industry enter because they have just a higher sex drive. Mm. So I'm just wondering, like, what would you say to that person? Like, based on your experience, that definitely was not the case. Yeah, I... Based on what I've seen, I don't think anyone myself included, anyone that I knew in the industry, I don't think any of us really necessarily had a higher sex drive than our peers, Yeah, you know, of the same age. Yeah. Um, like, I think we generally probably were about average, right? Yeah. Um, but what I do think sticks out is I do, th- do think there was, you know, a bit of, for at least my case, I can definitely say there was hypersexuality as a response of trauma. Right. And so there needs to be a distinguishing there. Mm, is it a higher sex sense. drive or is it hypersexuality in response to trauma? Because yeah. hypersexuality in response to trauma may look like from the outside a higher sex drive to someone. Yeah. But if you get to know the person and you dig into their psyche, you'd see that they're hypersexual because of trauma. And um yeah, I've seen 
that often in the porn industry. I definitely can speak for myself that that's my situation. Yeah. Um, I can't obviously speak for everyone, but I have seen it for other people as yeah. well. Yeah, that's interesting. So from your first time in the porn industry, what was it that drove you to perform more consistently in porn over that next, you know, seven months, almost a year? I was in the industry and I stayed in the industry because I needed the money. Um, like I said, I was in school whenever I started and I needed it to finish school. I needed the money to help, um, you know, pay my rent and feed myself, but also to pay tuition and, you know, other school fees. And then whenever I finally graduated, the economy was not doing very well. And it was very hard to find entry-level jobs. And so I was not getting work anywhere. And so, you know, porn kept me afloat after graduation as well. And, you know, I've heard people ask, well, why didn't you just, you know, like other millennials at the time, why didn't you just move home back home with your mom? And um, so I didn't feel at the time that my family was a safe space because of just situations going on at home. Um, and especially because I was gay and still grappling with that and figuring that out, um, home with my family did not seem like a very safe option. And so I'm just out here trying to make it on my own um, until hopefully, you know, I find um, a little bit more stable work. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, the economy was not doing very good. And so that became very difficult. And so porn seemed to be becoming, you know, more of my career. Yeah. Quote, unquote, career. Right. I think one thing to learn from your personal account is that stigmas are unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at a psychologist, one of the requirements for being a psychologist is to hold unconditional positive regard for the people you work with. And it seems like that same standard should be held by caregivers, you know, including parents. We should have unconditional positive regard for the kids we care for. Because I just wonder, like, what would have been different if you did have a place to go and to open up and engage in genuineness and acceptance and receive some empathy. Yeah. It's tough to think about, but... Something I encountered a lot while I was in the industry is a, a lot of the other gay, young gay men that I was in the industry with, mm -hmm. a lot of them were um, in it trying to survive because they had no other resources. Yeah, I encountered often um, many who were kicked out of their home because they were gay and they were, you know, now surviving with their boyfriend by living in hotels or sleeping on friends' couches and doing pornography and having survival sex basically. Yeah. Um, and it's very, very common in the LGBT plus community for um, us to resort to survival sex when we're in those situations. Um, because again, we're, we're an over-sexualized community. So, you know, we're stigmatized with it to the point that it becomes normal to us. And then whenever we're in situations where we're young, have no job skills, um, can't find work, and needing a means to survive and these opportunities are presented to us, we resort to survival sex. Right. Well, we appreciate you shedding some, you know, more, under more understanding on what happens. It seems like the porn industry tries to like virtue signal mm. and like pose as an ally. For LGBT plus people. Yeah. yeah. But then the thing that's frustrating to me is like at the same time they perpetuate some of the misrepresentations and profit from the misrepresentations of the 
LGBTQ plus community. Right. Yeah, you um, you just hit the nail on the head. Like I said, I we, we as LGBT plus people, we aren't often taught about our sexual orientations, our gender identities, but we still have to learn, you know, healthy sexuality. Yeah. And unfortunately, so many in my community um, do go to pornography to learn about our sexuality and our gender identities. And, you know, that's why the porn industry often poses as an ally for us. But whenever you dig into it and you're watching it, especially being on this side of it, I can see now just how homophobic all the material, all the content that the porn industry produced was. Like, it's so violent and, and degrading. And, you know, you know, I often hear from, you know, our, the crowds that you and I are probably familiar with uh, about, you know, straight porn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for lack of a better word, I don't know what else to call it. Straight porn. Right. Um, that, um, you know, that it's violent. And it's aggressive, especially towards women. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing in the gay porn industry right. and the and, and trans porn as well. Right. Um, is that th- it's violent and it's portraying our gen our gender and our sexuality. It's portraying it as this violent, you know, coercive rape. Right. Like it's just not healthy. Thing. Like yeah. I don't know, like healthy sex is such an awesome thing, but the porn industry, generally speaking, it just distorts it. Right. It, um, you know, I, I often, I, I commented on a uh, post that Gil Dines made mm-hmm. uh, a couple months ago, and she was really intrigued by this because um, she pointed out, like, you know, a lot of people will point out that in straight porn, the woman is being, being, um, aggressed against, like there's violence towards her. Right. In gay porn, violence is often portrayed still towards the receiving individual. Yeah. And often what it is, what I experienced often in the porn industry, is the receiving individual was a gay individual. And the vi- the one who was portraying the violence yeah. was... A straight person, a straight man that had been hired, right? That who was gay for pay for yeah. that scene, yeah. Um, and that right there, I'm just, you know looking back at the, the, those type of scenes that I was in, I'm like, that is straight up homophobia. They're having a straight person, a straight man, yeah, um, sexually violating a gay man. It's still the same thing that you know porn is saying to women. In straight porn, where it's saying, you know, men are aggressors against you and this is normal. Yeah. To gay people, we're being told by porn, still, men are aggressors against us and this is normal and this is what we should submit to. This is our sexuality. Right. This is what it is. You know, the homophobic terms, like I've seen, you know, the F word word used and by the F word, I mean the A word. Not not the F, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, I, I've seen all that used in the porn industry, and it normalizes it. And they somehow get a pass for all of that. Um, and they're still called, you know, allies of our community. And often at, at gay pride events, you'll see booths and whole sections where it's like, this is the adult entertainment section. This is the porn section. And it's so celebrated. And, and I think the celebration, again, comes from because w- we don't have many outlets to learn about our sexuality healthily. Right. So many of us resort to porn. I can relate to that as like a heterosexual male. You probably have experienced something to an even greater level, like the lack of resources to learn about healthy sex. Mm -hmm. But even me, like as a heterosexual male, like I didn't have many resources and my parents are great parents, but they didn't talk to me about healthy sex growing up. Right. And so, I mean, even no matter really what your sexuality is, I think we're kind of in a similar boat in that way where we're turning to porn oftentimes because it's like, where else do we turn to learn about sex if no one wants to talk to us about it? Right. And often, no matter if you're straight and you're learning, if you're gay and you're learning about it, we're being taught, those who grew up learning about sex from porn, we're being taught that sex is violent 
and aggressive yeah. and that we're not making love, we're making hate. And you act on someone yeah. instead of and like it's about, mutual sorry. participation. No, sorry, you're good. Yeah, and it's and I often, you know, see people thinking that it's about, you know, I need to be pleased. I need, you know, they need to please me. Right. When really sexuality, healthy sexuality is I want to please my partner. And whenever you both come together and you're like, I want to please this person, and they're like, I want to please this, you know, they want to please right. you, like that gets it's real be- steamy. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's very healthy beautiful. Healthy sexuality yes. is healthy. Yes, it's healthy and it's and it, it's sexy. I don't right. know. <laughs> I don't it's know pro sex. It's, sex. it's it's true pro sex. Right. Yes. You know, we want to be loyal to the absent. And I acknowledge that because the next question is kind of talking about, I guess you've already kind of answered this actually regarding like other men in the industry. It sounds like their experiences were similar to yours. Did you have anyone as like an outlier that you met in the porn industry that was like, had a really healthy sexuality and was like there for the right reasons and was, it was completely consensual. Did you have any outliers like that? I honestly, I'm glad you're asking this question because honestly, I can't think of a single individual. There's two individuals that come to my mind as um, good examples. One's an example of why they're there. The other one's about how we cope with being there. Mm-hmm. Um, one individual on my first scene, he he wasn't new to the industry, but I was, and there was another person there who was also new to the industry. So he, this this person who wasn't new, yeah. kind of, you know, introduced us a little bit and kind of helped us know what to expect. Right. In the process, he told a little bit of his story. He actually had performed years prior in the industry, but then he started dating a boyfriend who took care of him and, you know, housed him, fed him, you know, all that. So he stopped doing porn because he no longer needed to. Yeah. He was being provided for. He had someone to support him. Yeah. Whenever he and that boyfriend broke up and he no longer had a home, he no longer had regular meals, he no longer had you know, the support and, and um, someone to provide for him, then he went back to porn and that's when I met him hmm. is he was back because – he didn't have any other means. Yeah. So, you know, back then I, this didn't dawn on me, but it was later looking back that I'm like, oh my gosh, he didn't want to be there. If yeah. he really wanted to be there whenever he had the boyfriend it was being provided for, he would have continued doing it, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, but now that he was no longer dating his boyfriend and he didn't have the the provision, he was doing it right? because he didn't have support. And that has always clicked to me as that's also why I was there. That's why so many of us were there is if we had other options, we would go to those, but we didn't have other options. Right. Another individual who comes to my mind, it was one of my last scenes. It wasn't my last, but it was one of my last scenes while I was grappling with if I'm going to stop. Mm-hmm. It was after I had done a shoot, my scene was over or wrapping and I'm about to leave. I see this individual coming down the hallway, stumbling, drunk, like having to lean up against the wall to hold himself up. And I'm just like, hey, man, are you okay? And he's, you know, drunk and he's like, I'm fine, right? Like he he was barely coherent, right. couldn't understand him. My co-performer and I take him. We, we, you know, prop him up on our shoulders and we take him to set and we, you know, help lead him to set and we lay him on the bed and we leave him there. And as I'm, again, leaving, my co-performer is like talking to me. He's like, you know, I can't, I don't want to perform with him yeah. because he's a mess. Like right. he's always drunk or he's always on drugs or he's something because, you know, he was crying the other day saying he doesn't really want to be in porn and all of this. And right then I stopped and I, I like had a, an epiphany moment. And I looked at my my friend and I said, do any of us really want to be in this? Mm. And he took a moment and he confessed, you know, if I had other options, I guess I would take them. Because he he was an example of, 
you know, someone who was kicked out of their home and they were doing this as survival sex, mm-hmm. you know, to take care of themselves. And, and it dawned on me that I had just left this other performer who was drunk and stumbling and incoherent. I had just left him on a bed to perform a scene for the porn industry in front of the cameras. I had just left him on a bed in the same state that I was the night that I had been raped and pictures were taken of me. And in that moment, it's like all these things started like bursting in me of, oh my gosh, you know, like it just kind of bookended this whole season of my life where I'm like, all of this is not right. And it's all tying together as this one spirit, this one mentality, this one like mindset that's so normalized in our world. And it all stems from porn. Wow. And it's sexual assault. That's just paid and on camera. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Did I even answer your question? Yeah, um, you don't need to question if you answered it because you definitely did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I could I can't even remember what your question was, but I was like, you know what? I'm gonna talk about these two it was about, situations. It was about just like if there were any outliers who had just like a who did have other options, who weren't doing it for oh, survival right. sex, who weren't who didn't have an unhealthy, you know, like hypersexuality tra- uh, triggered by trauma. Right. And yeah, so, no outliers. Yeah. I can't think of a single outlier, but those two situations are like ingrained in my memory wow. as things that just solidified to me why we're there and what it's like being there. Being conscious of that, like the fact that you kind of helped that person get on set and then realizing what had just happened, that must have been a heavy realization. I'm just wondering if that was like, do you consider that one of your low of lows? Um, it was the beginning of my low of lows. Ooh, wow. Um, it was a situation that definitely started triggering to me that, you know, I really probably need to get out of this. But I stayed in porn for a little bit longer. And what ended up being my low of lows is there was this cycle, even during that scene, but it kind of snowballed further. There was this cycle going on where I would catch an STI and you know, the porn industry doesn't have health insurance, or at least it didn't provide health insurance at that point. Mm -hmm. But I would catch an STI. I'd have to get treatment. But while I was in treatment, I couldn't be in porn to make the money. Mm -hmm. So then I'd be in treatment. Then I'd have to immediately go back to porn to get the money to pay off my medical bills and then to continue to survive. Damn. And then again, I'd catch another STI. And then again, I'd have to get treatment. And there just became this cycle of that going on until one time I had an HIV scare and that ha- that that the realization that I left him to be sexually assaulted on set that whole cycle going on then finally an HIV scare I had an immense panic attack and you know and, and I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack but in a panic attack you start to think you're dying yeah. and you know, like you're having a heart attack and you're about to just kill over. Yeah. Um, but in the midst of that panic attack, everything just kind of stopped and that just shifted everything. And actually it was from that moment on, it became more and more uncomfortable being in porn. Um, and it's from there that um, my life just completely transformed. Well, Thank you for sharing all of those things. Um, going back, one thing you said that was kind of interesting to me when you're talking about STIs and some of the you know negative consequences of being in the porn industry, it, I couldn't help but think about income versus expenditures. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, did you actually end up making money? Like, did you make any decent money in porn or did the... Like if you were weighing out the income versus expenditures, did it end up being not that beneficial, monetarily speaking? Yeah, I was actually thinking about this 
actually just the other day. Because <laughs> um, I feel like the medical bills that I had for it, that like just the damage is done to my body and, you yeah. know, with the SCIs and everything, um, there were medical bills that I continued paying, you know, even after I left. I, I just feel like, you know, with all of those, if we accumulate all those together, I feel like, you know, it costs more, hmm. you know, to be in. Like, I feel That's like it definitely costs a bit more for me. Um, I mean, I, I can't speak to everyone's situation, but, yeah. I don't know if I mean, this is true or not, but I don't know if you've watched that interview with Mia Khalifa on the BBC. Mm-mm. She talked about her experience in porn, and if I'm remembering correctly... She says that she made about $12,000 from porn. And, like, she's one of the most watched individuals ever in porn. And she claims she only made $12,000 anyway. Like, minus all the expenses and stuff? I don't know. She didn't get into that context. She just, uh. I think from what I remember in the interview, she just said she made 12000 And, like, can you imagine if, like, one of the most viewed people in entertainment, like a healthier entertainment, like let's say an actor or a singer, like one of the most viewed or if they had only made $12,000, like that would be a sign that there's exploitation happening somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I warn people it's not as lucrative as we want to paint it out to be, you know, porn. I don't think people realize, you know, you know, porn is a multi-billion dollar industry and because they have so much money, they have great PR. So they they can they have, you know, great ways of making themselves look better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, than what they really are. Right. You know, making it seem like it's glitz and glamour and it's like any other part of the entertainment industry. Like, you know, I said earlier, um, the guy who I called my pimp now, he was a talent agent mm-hmm. or a manager, yeah. talent scout, whatever. Those were the words we use. But he was my pimp. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear words like porn star and, you know, all that to glitz and glamour it up. But really, we're prostituted people. And I don't think they will realize that. If we use the real words for what's really going on, like, I think it'll be a little less glamorous. It'll right. present the reality. But instead, because it's a multi-billion dollar industry with great PR, you know, we want to use all these images and all these, uh, paint this idea that it's glitz and glamour. Yeah. And it's not glamorous at all. And so, I mean, I, I don't know exactly everything that Mia Khalifa has been through and everything, but right. I'm not too surprised right. that she only made $12,000. Yeah. Hmm. Well, as you transitioned away from pornography, like how did you begin healing from the traumas that you had had? Um, you know, going into prayer and meditation, it was that alone time in my prayer and meditation time that really was very healing and therapeutic for me. And then also as I dug in and researched and learned more, like whenever I uh, first got into this type of research on the porn industry and sexual trauma and all that, that was, it really shed a light on me and kind of opened my eyes to understand things from a psychological point of view. Whenever I went to the National Center on Sexual Exploitation's um, summit, like I think it was their first summit that I went to. All the information that I got from you guys, from other individuals, that was very healing to me to kind of learn all those facts and stuff because I was able to understand it through the through the lens of my experience mm-hmm. and kind of be like, oh, this is like that experience and this is like that experience and it kind of brought it all together. Um, yeah. Well, looking at yourself today and your relationship with your husband and comparing that to your sexuality early on, like part of the mainstream narrative that porn tries to push is that porn can improve your sexuality. And I think this is maybe a stupid question because I might know the answer to it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, do you feel like your sexuality today is healthier without porn in your life? (laughs) Absolutely. And it's (laughs) not a stupid question. Um, it uh yeah absolutely my sexuality is so much healthier i'm just overall healthier without porn um today because like i said porn distorted sexuality for me and now that i've had years away from it i've l- relearned 
what sexuality really is. And it's, it's so much more intimate. It's so much more connecting. It's so much more powerful than what porn portrays, what porn could possibly ever portray. Because whenever someone's given money for sex, that's not intimacy. Mm -hmm. Like that's coercion. You know, if they need money to do it, they don't really want to have sex. Right. But they're being coerced because they need to. They they need the money. Um, and so they're, now they're obligated to in exchange for the money. And there's no true intimacy in that. You can't buy intimacy. Mm. But with true healthy sexuality of, you know, two people coming together and enjoying each other's, um, trying to please each other as opposed to, you know, trying to get trying to get pleasure from the other, trying to please each other. Um, trying to be pleasing, there's just an intimacy and just the power behind that that that's not possible whenever money is exchanged for the sex. Yeah. Whenever it's or whenever it's behind a screen, you know, and you're alone in your room, like it's just not possible. There, there's so, such, so there's such a power whenever it's real and authentic and intimate. Thanks for speaking to those things. It makes a lot yeah. of sense. We've talked about some heavy things, and we've talked about your low of lows and all of the, some of the traumas that you've experienced. I shouldn't say all of the traumas, but some of the traumas you've experienced. And man, it can be a heavy thing to talk about this, this stuff. I think it's also important to talk about, you know, the hopeful side. I'm just kind of wondering, what does your life look like now? Yeah, so my life is drastically different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I now have a, you know, a job outside of the porn industry that pays well enough and I'm able to take care of myself and my husband and, and feed ourselves, pay our rent. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm married now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're about to celebrate our seventh anniversary in March. Nice. I'm not allowing myself to be bought and used um, for sex anymore. Sex is something I see as a special part of my relationship with my husband. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. And what advice do you have for someone right now if we have any listeners that are currently in the porn industry, but you know they, they want to transition out, but they're unsure if they'll be able to? Do you have any words of advice for those people? Yeah. My main thing whenever I encounter someone who's still in the industry is... I want to remind them that they are worth so much more. And many of them know that. Many of them know that they are worth so much more. You're worth so much more and you are worthy of real, true love. Yeah. I believe that as well. Well, Aaron, as the conversation kind of comes to an end here, we want to leave you with the opportunity to have the last word. If there's anything that you haven't mentioned or something on your heart or mind that you wanted to talk to that we haven't talked to yet. We'd love to hear those thoughts as well. Um, so I think if I have any final words, my final words would just be to those who are still on the fence and trying to decide where they stand whenever it comes to pornography is when you click on your screen and you decide you're going to watch that video you're seeing images that have been edited, that have been put together in such a way that are just there to entice you and arouse you and to stimulate you sexually. They're not telling you what's going on behind the camera. They're not telling you why those people are in front of the camera to begin with. They're not telling you, you know, what's going on in their minds. They're not telling you what's going on in their heart. They're not telling you their life story. They're not telling you any of their situation. And you have no idea what kind of trauma they may actually be going through. You don't know really what... You you don't have the intimacy that you're actually really wanting. You're not getting that right in that situation. And so it's it's just this fake supplement to fulfill this deep human need that you have for intimacy, but it's not really fulfilling it. It's 
it's like your body's really thirsty and you need water, but you're trying to quench your thirst with Coke and Dr. Pepper and alcohol and And all the other, and salt water. Yeah, I like that example, with salt water. It's not real intimacy. It's not, you're not really getting to know them, even if they're, they're, you know, quote unquote celebrity porn stars, right? And they're out on these interviews and they are sharing a little bit of their personal life or anything. They're only showing you the bits and pieces that will get you to come back and watch them because the industry needs to make money. That is their overall goal is to make money and profit. And the more clicks and the more views helps that. And so they're not going to tell you the truth of why that person is there to begin with. Because if they told you the reality of that person's situation, you would not want to watch it. Yeah. Well, Aaron, these conversations mean so much to me. And I've had a very enjoyable time talking with you. Likewise. (laughs) Very uh, much likewise. We appreciate the fact that you're willing to be genuine and engage in some, you know, self-disclosure and openness because it helps us to consider before consuming. Absolutely. Want to bring Fight the New Drug to your school, business, or community event? Lucky for you, we're pros when it comes to live presentations. We provide information and entertainment to inspire your audience to consider how pornography can impact themselves, their loved ones, and the world around them. We'll present the facts in an interactive, age-appropriate, and engaging way so your audience can walk away with more information on the harms of porn. To book a presentation, visit ftnd.org forward slash live. That's ftnd.org forward slash L-I-V-E. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science facts and personal accounts. If you want to learn more about today's guest and the conversation we had, you can check out the links included with this episode. Again, big thanks to you for listening to this conversation. As you go about your day, we invite you to increase your self-awareness, look both ways, check your blind spots, and consider before consuming.